1: Big Thing, the show where the TSS gang take a deeper dive into a meaty topic in the beautiful game. Today, we're discussing one of the most controversial ownership groups in all of soccer, the Glazer family, and their time at the helm of Manchester United PLC. Uh, United became a publicly traded company in 1991, and Malcolm Glazer's initial 3% stake in the club was announced in September 2003. A couple years later, by 2005... They owned 98% of the Glazers, having purchased the club with loans secured against the club itself. And suffice to say, it's been a happy and fun time ever <laughs> since. Uh, my name's Ryan Bailey, joining me to stifle his sighs and frustration as we discuss the club he loves. Taylor Rockwell, hello.
0: Hi, Ryan. How are you? That's the only one I'll let out. I'll try to be good from now on.
1: And also slightly less passive-aggressive today, hopefully, Graham Ruddman. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Ah, that's better. There we go. Sorry, Taylor. I love you. But um, I know this is a hard one for you to discuss. <laughs> I'll start with Graham then. Uh, could you give us, Graham, a little pre of how the Glazers came to power, some of the numbers involved mm-hmm. in their Man United tenure?
2: Yeah, so let's rewind it all the way back to the start. I presume that most listeners have heard of the Glazers and know that they own Manchester United, but you might not actually know who the Glazers are because they're a pretty secretive family. They obviously don't have much of a public presence at Manchester United. So just to to recap, the Glazers are a billionaire American family whose wealth originates from The business started by Malcolm Glazer. Uh, Glazer was the head of a a holding company called First uh, uh, First Allied, who had a lot of different interests in various... uh, unsexy companies from Zapata which is a, a, an oil and gas company to Houlihan's Restaurants, um, to I guess these last two are slightly interesting Harley Davidson and Tonka Toys um, They had first allied had stakes in those companies as a public figure Malcolm Glazer he rose to prominence following the, the purchase of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL in 1995 and from there Glazer bought out shareholders in Manchester United between 2003 and 2005 until the point that he gained full control of the club at that time the most profitable football club in the world. Uh, Malcolm Glazer died in 2014 and his business and ownership of the Buccaneers and Manchester United was passed on to his family. So you now have a number of members of the family on the United board, including Avram and Joel, who tend to be the the two with the most influence. But you also have Kevin, Brian, Darcy and Edwards all on the board as well. And the, the Glazers takeover of Manchester United in 2005, we're obviously going to do you can you could talk about this all day, you could write a book about the issues with the Glazers takeover, but um and obviously we're doing a podcast on it. But if you had to boil down why it was so controversial um it was due to the mechanism that you mentioned there Ryan of how the glazers facilitated this takeover so they, they had a minority stake in the club which allowed them to go to the bank and they received a loan of 660 million pounds secured against the assets of Manchester United they also committed 270 million pounds of their own money to buy out other shareholders so that money didn't even go into Manchester United that went into the the pockets of previous shareholders and that that loan is the key part because the the loan the Glazers took out to buy uh, to buy the club was secured against the club itself which meant the debt was put onto Manchester United which was a uh, 600 million that 660 million pound loan was laded onto the club until that point Manchester United hadn't had any debt as a club in their history the interest payments alone at that point amounted to 62 million pounds a year I believe those payments have come down slightly because there was a a restructuring of that loan package not so long ago. But the the, the money is still eye watering. It's about twenty three million pounds a year that they're currently paying just to service the interest and and those payments have been made every year for the last seventeen years, meaning Manchester United have paid over one billion pounds for the privilege of servicing the debt the Glazers have placed on the club to buy it for their own benefit that is if I were to say what the main issue is with the Glazers as owners is that they have not contributed much at all um, in terms of their ownership of the club in terms of how much they've put into the club and they have um, taken a lot out of the club both in terms of dividends which I think we'll talk a little bit more about and also those interest payments
1: so that's the how uh, they took over covered can we dig in a little bit more Taylor into the why Um, Graham mentioned it was for their own benefit. Presumably, there's a financial element here, but why did they pick Man United?
0: Yeah, I think they picked Manchester United because Manchester United at the time were one of the most successful clubs on the planet. Somewhat from a commercial standpoint, they definitely saw the opportunity there, but I think we're a known entity in many different countries, including the United States, and when you have a club that is known in the US that is operating abroad, I think right there you can see opportunity, and this is the Glazer family who also own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, continue to own them. Uh, And at the time they start going about acquiring those percentage uh, shares of Man United, the Bucs have just won the Super Bowl. And so I think they're seeing this opportunity to develop brands or sporting clubs as brands to operate them as businesses. And that was the big talking point of the time is clubs need to be run as businesses, not as clubs anymore. And so they see this opportunity to buy a club the size of Manchester United or used leveraged buyouts to eventually buy the club uh, and then convert them into the commercial sponsored financial juggernaut they have become. And to do that, they bring in a person who helped them acquire their ownership interest in the club Ed Woodward and make him the chairman and kind of grant him permission to run the club as he sees fit, specifically on the commercial side of things. And so there's this explosion in the commercial revenue, in ad sales and sponsorship money, and they're able to utilize that money to basically pay down the debt and pay the Glazer's dividend payments uh, and then spend it on the squad. And so there is still money spent on the team, but largely it's about creating this uh, international brand that you can then merchandise and market.
1: So Taylor, I'm going to ask you to explain it to me like I'm five at this sure. point. Um, I get all the financial stuff that, that Graham has mentioned about you know taking money out of the club and putting very little in. But as mm-hmm. a Man United fan, why am I specifically unhappy with the team after or their ownership, I should say? Because after 2005, you know, United have won trophies, they've won leagues in that yep. period of time. Uh, it's not as if they've been relegated and gone into obscurity. They've not been moved from their home. They've not had anything fundamentally changed about their legacy. So why am I particularly angry at the Glazers?
0: Well, there's two things. First, I would say I I think they have fundamentally changed the legacy of the club just a little bit. And that's more of a recent thing. But you cannot see them in the same way that you see the other huge clubs in England at this point, certainly and in global football the same. I think there are... Way bigger teams in terms of success on the pitch Uh, and maybe also on the commercial side of things, I think closing that gap with Manchester United. And that for me is one big thing. It's the idea that there has never really been that much of an emphasis on the on-field product, uh, exemplified by Ed Woodward refusing to hire a sporting director refusing to give over control of the player side of things and that has been much to the club's detriment because I don't think he's particularly good at that sort of thing and it starts in the very beginning when he is overly aggressive in his pursuit of Cesc Fabregas who never seemed like he was really inclined to end up signing for Manchester United so the club ends up having to go back to the well and they sign Marouane Fellaini for more money than they needed to and that sort of becomes par for the course from that point on so often Players and clubs use Manchester United and their financial resources as a way to either for players get better deals from their clubs or for uh, for the selling club to basically jack up the price and eventually sell the player to Manchester United or use them as leverage to move players on. But I think on the playing side of thing, on the player acquisition side of things and the way the team functions you can only see it as a negative the glazers taking over the thing that kind of kept the club going for the time to- from the time they sort of acquired that uh majority ownership interest to 2013 is Sir Alex Ferguson. And that is the other part of this that I think has to be mentioned because there was, I think after he left, there was initially that sort of backlash of like, he papered over the cracks, but he left them in a worse state and the club wasn't that strong and the team wasn't very good and David Moyes inherited this bad team. I do not buy into that. I never really bought into that one, but I certainly don't now. What I think is more so the case, and you can go and listen to our Soccer 101 episode about all the things Sir Alex Ferguson did well, is that he was a master delegator by the end of his tenure and that he was coaching the team, but he had other people running training. He had other people informing some of the tactical decisions, but he would hire people who expressed this interest in advanced analytics. That's how Steve McLaren comes into the fold. Uh, Like He would hire new groundskeepers to, to come up with new ways to preserve the grass. He was all about... Like innovative thinking, and he was the sort of hive mind decision maker. And when he steps away, no one steps into that role or no one effectively steps into that role. They try to fill it with different people or committees or a, a new manager in Jose Mourinho. But I think in the end, it's just you cannot replace that force of personality. You have to have a structural, fundamental change. And that was never a thing the Glazers were interested in. They're interested in taking money out of it and using it to make commercial revenue. And when you don't have Ferguson there anymore? You don't have a person who can kind of handle all of that pressure, and you see the way things have gone. You see the results, and I think the really frustrating thing in the end is that they don't seem to care too much about the slide in form or how mm. bad the team has been because they're still making money,
2: they're still making massive dividend payments, uh, and cutting those checks at the end of the season. Yeah, F- Ferguson. Ferguson was a freak of of a, of a manager, and that they were just never going to find someone that could fill that void, even that though they tried. Impossible. And that has been, on the sporting side of things, the biggest mistake that the Glazers have made is that they didn't realise that the, the club needed to modernise. And I think they've started to do that now, but they're just they're just making up so much ground on their rivals. And Taylor, you've done a, a very good job there of outlining um, the issues on the sporting side of things. But I, I also think there is, there's a lot of reason for Manchester United fans to be unhappy with things off the pitch as well. Yeah. And if I had to separate it into three different categories... I would say it's debt, dividends and infrastructure. So I've already covered the debt side of things. The dividend side of things is, is worth laying out as well. So at this moment in time, the Glazers are the only owners in the Premier League that take dividends out of the club. And they've taken £154 million in dividends over the last 10 years, which stings for Manchester United fans when they're seeing a product on the pitch that is so poor. It's essentially the family rewarding themselves for, as fans see it, failure. That's what Manchester the, the last 10 years, has been defined by for Manchester United, is, is failure. And that money has gone straight into their pocket. The Glazers have also had bond issues in which they created a whole bunch of new class issues. Uh, B-class shares and the money raised from that was either used to repay some loans to international banks or it was pocketed by the family. So the money did not go that the money that Manchester United created from those uh, B-class shares didn't actually go, go to the club itself. And then infrastructure, um, I'm talking about things like the stadium. I've been to old Trafford a few times in my life. I first went when I was a kid, and it was incredible when I went as a kid. I'm talking about when I was about eight or nine years old, maybe slightly older. It was It was the best stadium in England when I first went. And then I went maybe four years ago with a friend, and it was crumbling at that point. The Glazers have allowed that stadium to rot. The roof leaks, it's rusting, and you compare that to how... Tottenham have rebuilt their stadium, Arsenal in the, in the time of the Glazers ownership have a new stadium, you have Liverpool, they're in the process of rebuilding the Anfield Road stand, they have a new main stand, the area around Anfield has been redeveloped. Liverpool also have a brand new state-of-the-art training ground. United's training ground, however, like Old Trafford, hasn't been touched in any significant way since the Glazers took over. And at the time it was opened in 2000, Carrington was the best training ground in world football. And now it lags behind training grounds owned by City, who obviously have that amazing Etihad campus, Liverpool's new training ground, Cobham, owned by uh, Chelsea, Spurs, Lodge. Even clubs like Leicester have kind of left Manchester United behind in that regard so i think there's plenty on and off the pitch for my age fans to be unhappy about
1: do you think it also stings a little bit graham how much they've commercialized the club as well in terms of it it becomes a joke if you look at their website the amount of commercial partners they have like the official Mm. diesel engine partner and that's a (laughs) a legitimate one they have so do do you think that kind of thing where it, it just looks a bit cynical i kind of compare it to almost compare it to mike ashley's reign at newcastle where he just kept things ticking over and didn't, yeah, do it, to a, didn't to go a, above the ordinary,
2: you know? To, to a certain extent, because let's not forget that even before the Glazers took over, Manchester United were a, a very commercial club. They were one of the most commercialised clubs In the world, as I mentioned right at the top of the show, they were the most profitable club at that point and they didn't get to that stage without without having big sponsorship deals. And uh, I heard one fan, I was watching a documentary about the creation of the Premier League and it was a Manchester United fan complaining that the club had become like a theme park and that was before the Glazers. So I think those complaints still existed before the Glazers. I think where it becomes an issue is that if you have a successful team on the pitch... You you can kind of sell it as well. We're capitalising it, uh, capitalising on the success of the actual football team. When that falls by the wayside, as my night have in the last ten years, and you don't have that successful team on the pitch, it does become a little bit ridiculous, as you say there, Ryan, where they where they're they're selling a club that really shouldn't have that brand value. And maybe we're going to we'll come to talk about that a, a little bit later on. But there's actually signs that that brand value is starting to sag, and that's yeah. maybe where the Glazers will have some issues.
0: Yeah, Speaking as a fan, I don't necessarily care as much about the commercial side of things. I definitely did when they weren't announcing signings, but they were announcing noodle partnerships. That's the famous one that always gets touted. The thing that really rubs me the wrong way about them uh, on this topic is that it's just it's really clear that they see it now as their club. It's a thing they own. You're welcome that we let you still enjoy it. But that has been their mentality from the beginning. As you said, Ryan, we don't know a ton about them. They don't really speak in public. They don't deal with fans or supporters, they don't make them feel like, we understand that this was your club before we bought it, that you all are the ones who uh, attend the games, who care about this club, who die by the results. There is no appreciation for that support. It is just a we own this, you're allowed to attend these games. And that is exemplified by like what Graham's talking about with the stadium. They painted it red this off season. And that's such <laughs> a like we'll throw you a bone, we'll paint the crumbling stadium, that should work. Like How many bad landlords have painted over obvious damage to be like oh no it's fine now we painted
2: over it that should solve the electrical issue behind the wall. and they it's do the, things it's the, like that. The, the off-the-pitch equivalent of signing a 37-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo and being like, see, yeah. it's still good. Yeah, yeah it's, it still <laughs> works. We're not going to raise ticket prices for like the ninth straight year,
0: but that's because we're making so much money elsewhere and taking money out of the club that we don't need to. We'll sign some players every now and then when it feels like everybody's getting really, really, really angry, but that's entirely dependent on the manager of the day, not on any sort of overarching structure and any sort of believable plan for how they're going about managing making things happen so at the end of the day it just feels like a a business that they are pulling money out of and are sort of confused as to why people are annoyed about that
1: now now taylor i'm just picturing picturing like joel glazer on a ladder with a bucket of red paint sort of going this this will shut them up
0: (laughs) i mean really it feels like ah, this would shut them up for a while why not that is how it feels
2: like their vibe has been from the beginning Oh. It was actually Phil Jones that they got to do that job.
1: He's got oh, to justify
2: that wage somehow. He does Part something. That's we good had, to know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's take a very quick break. we we come back, let's talk about the protests against the Glazers and much more coming shortly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Welcome back to Total Soccer Show and the big thing, Glazer's special. Uh, Tay-Tay. We've seen a lot of protests against the Glazers. We've seen green and yellow scarves Mm -hmm. at Old Trafford uh, many times over the years. Perhaps we can talk about that. And also there has been an offshoot protest club formed, FC United of Manchester, over the years as well. So uh, plenty has been done in terms of uh, activities against the Glazers, but to little effect.
0: Yeah. Because they own the club. There's not really much you can do short of making them a ridiculous over-the-top offer. There was that attempt to uh, buy the Glazers out uh, by, by a supporters group a few years ago. I think they raised a billion pounds is what the number would have been, and that was... Uh, less than double what the Glazers wanted for their initial investment, quote-unquote, since it wasn't their actual investment, but they were looking for around $1.6 billion. Now that number has dramatically increased over the years. But short of buying them out, there's not a whole lot else that can be done. And so there's been the Love United, Hate Glazer movement. There's been the Green and Gold Until the Club is Sold movement. As you said, FC United of Manchester were the offshoot club who've had Success, And then I feel like more recently less success, but there has been that sort of fan engagement or supporter frustration uh, visualized. And then I think more recently it has taken a turn where initially it felt sort of like, well, we're going to show our dissatisfaction and certainly they'll cave to public pressure and make some concessions. And I think as we saw last season, the turn towards actual anger and maybe a little bit of violence seems to have made people realize like, oh, this isn't just sports fans being annoyed. There's something more to this. And that was where there was more engagement with supporters. But even that at this point does not feel like it has been enough. And so that's where we continue to see new people linked, new ownership groups potentially coming in for takeovers. But ultimately, it's a difficult thing, I think, to move on because the Glazers want so much money on the sale and have so many things sort of invested from their personal fortune or – Rather, their personal fortune is so uh, benefited by the club so consistently with those dividend payments now especially that there's not a huge motivation for them to sell short of no longer being able to afford the payments and the interest as as it increases or fluctuates. But even there, they continue to sell shares and find ways to subsidize it. So I think it's been a really frustrating thing to see all of these organized fan groups and supporters movements that – don't end up having much traction because there's not much to be done short of having a billionaire come in and buy out the Glazers.
1: Graham, in terms of the protests uh, and their effectiveness, could it be that they simply don't go far enough? I mean, they make they make they move the needle in the media, of course, when mm. when these protests happen. And we, of course, we had the game canceled. Was it last season, the Liverpool game, where it was yeah. famous? The canceled it was. Uh, there was concerns that that would happen again this past week as we record. But you have to hit the Glazers where it hurts. And the only thing that hurts them is financially. So as long as fans are still turning up for games, I mean, there are fans who turn up to Old Trafford, but they don't buy any concessions or anything in the stadium or they don't buy shirts. But they're still buying season tickets and they're still giving money to the Glazers. So until people don't show up at that stadium, until people stop buying Man United stuff, it won't move the needle with the owners. Is that fair to say?
2: Until the Super League debacle, which is worth mentioning in, in itself, so I'll come back to that, I, I would have said that the, the protests didn't even register on the Glazers' radar. There, yeah. there had been no response from them. But I do believe something changed with the Super League. So I think there's been three peaks of protests from Manchester United fans. There was the original peak in 2005 where the, the Glazers Took over the club, and you had Joe Avram and, and Brian having to leave Old Trafford after one match in a, in a police riot van because of the crowds, and that kind of tells you how what the. The sentiment was towards them right from the start. I think you had another peak in 2010 when you had the green and gold campaign. And I remember a Champions League match for David Beckham. He was playing for AC Milan at the time. He picks up a, a green and gold scarf full-time. And that was taken as, as, as his backing for the campaign. That's just something in, in my mind I always associate with that peak. And then you had the third peak, which started with the Super League. When you had, as you say there, Ryan, the postponement of that match against Liverpool. And... Manchester United were one of the the leaders of the Super League proposal. Ed Woodward was the, the ringleader on the English side of things. He was leading things of the, the six Premier League clubs that were involved with that. And you had Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli. They were the guys on the European side of things. And obviously United fans had objections to the Super League proposal for sporting reasons, as plenty of fans did. But watching those protests... At Old Trafford, it felt like they saw this as the, the straw that, that broke the camel's back in terms of just the Glazers' greed, just more money. They, they just wanted more money. And and I think the Glazers and Manchester United in general have been slightly more um, open with fans. Slightly. Very, very slightly. So they said they were going to create more dialogue with fan groups after the Super League episode. We, we've yet to see that happen in, in any meaningful sort of way. But you have Richard Arnold going for that that infamous pint down the pub with some fans. I would suggest that that comes from this notion of we need to be a little bit more open with the fans. Um, I also think Man are, United are more aware of fan sentiment when it comes to things like transfers. So we saw a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, they aborted a move for Arnautovic because of fan reaction, and we can debate whether that's a good way to to be dictating a transfer strategy. But nonetheless. I think they are a little bit more aware of the fan unrest. I, I think in terms of the transfers, they're spending money now, signing Casemiro, and it feels like they're going to get Anthony before the end of the transfer window. I think that is in part due to the the protests, and it's and it's a, maybe it's a PR exercise to try and get to appease some of these fans. But nonetheless, it feels like they're taking more note of the protests. Whether whether that means they care enough about the protests to actually sell the club, I I doubt and um, that's a decision that they will take when it benefits them more than yeah. anyone else but protest does make a dent it does I, I do think they're thinking about it more and i would also like to come back to, uh, go on to a, a point later on about how there's an argument that this might actually be the time for the glazers to sell because it could benefit them to sell them at this point but i've been i've been speaking for a long time taylor taylor what do you think
0: I mean, I I think you've done a great job of laying out how the Super League, I think, really turned sentiment against the Glazers because that was just such a transparent attempt to – Cement them as, we're in the Super League, there will be no relegation, we will just print money, we won't have to reinvest that money, because again, there is no relegation, so who cares if we win or if we're good, we're in this league where everyone will want to be, so we'll always be able to get good players, even if we're not good on the pitch, and we'll be able to make so much money off of it, and it was just such a clear and obvious move towards... Uh, making money for themselves and not doing anything really for the supporters. And I want to emphasize, Graham, a number that you said. They have taken a billion pounds out of Manchester United to pay uh, the interest payments, to pay down the loans, uh, for refinancing penalties when they've tried to refinance, when interest rates changed. All of that is money that could have been spent on the club itself, that could have been spent on uh, remodeling or restructuring Old Trafford, that could have been spent on... New training facilities, more players, more money for managers, more money for staff and personnel and living uh, – uh, livable wage for employees, which many still don't have and they still haven't committed themselves to that. And I just think it's been – it has never been more clear – in more transparent how much the Glazers are about themselves and making money for themselves and the few shareholders that they actually care about. Because again, when they did uh, have those dividend payments of what, 23 million, I think it was 18 million went to the family. So not really even concerned about making money for the shareholders more so about making money for themselves. And that to me, and it is just such a frustrating thing because if they had, Spent that money and and helped uh, rebuild Old Trafford and and renovate Old Trafford and made the team good. I honestly don't know how much open hostility there would have been or if there would have been as much open hostility to the Super League. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I think it's a great thing that everybody went out and and vocalized how against it they were. But I think there's a reality in which if they were doing things well, there would have been United fans who thought, like, yeah, that's great. Let's go play the best teams in Europe every week and and dominate them and be the best team in the world. But I, I think because it's just so not about the footballing
2: side of things, it becomes clear what it's actually about. The other piece of context to add to that number that you talk about, Taylor, the the billion pounds that has been taken out of Manchester United is that that has happened at the same time that Manchester City have had a billion pounds put into that club by their owners. And obviously their owners have their their own issues, so I'm not necessarily saying that they're in a good situation. But just in terms of pure financials, City have had a billion pounds put into that club in that same time frame. Chelsea have had £1.5 billion put into that club in, in, in that same time frame. Uh, Fenway Sports Group are slightly different. They haven't put in quite as much, but I believe their figures are around about two hundred and seventy million pounds that they've put into that club, largely for the infrastructure pro- projects with the training ground in Anfield. You contrast that with Manchester United, and and uh, it's pretty stark.
1: So, Graham, I've seen um, when you've talked about the Glazers on your Twitter feed, and fans yeah. of other clubs have come to their defence. So, I'd like to put to both of you a counterpoint. I'd like to play. I'd like to uh, channel my Al Pacino and play devil's advocate. Second here. Because we can't say that the Glazers are the only greed and money-obsessed owners in world soccer. They're far from it. Is there an argument to say that they're actually good at this? That it doesn't really matter they take money out because this club still spends stupid amounts of money on players. They're still competitive. They still sit at the top table of world soccer. And is it necessarily the Glazers' fault that um you know things don't come together on the pitch like they should do i know that your know, culture starts at, at, at the top and all that jazz but could could you say that man united fans having dined at the top table for decades um you know they're, just, they're maybe a little bit spoiled almost graham what, what, what do you think about that and i'll come to you as well taylor
2: um, so I tweeted out something, you, you referenced it there, I tweeted out something last week about how, we've spoken about this, but to summarise how the Glazers have contributed nothing as minated owners and have taken a, a billion out of the club and, and how that alone, in my opinion, makes them bad owners. And I, I was I was pretty shocked, frankly, at the, the vast numbers of people, talking hundreds of people who replied to me telling me that that proved that they were good businessmen as as you're talking about there Ryan I know mm. you're just playing devil's advocate here but nonetheless um I guess it depends on what you think constitutes good and also what you think that the duty of a football club owner is there's there's no denying the Glazers have made themselves a lot of money as owners and maybe that makes them good quote unquote businessmen but but that has come at the cost of the of the club and the asset Itself. They have a disenfranchised fan base or customer base, if you want to look at it in business terms. They have depreciating assets in Old Trafford and the training ground. They have sponsorship deals that are now starting to fall in value. So the fact, the, oh, Taylor, what's the current sponsor called? I was going to say Fan Team, but that's not what uh, it's called. Team Viewer. It- TeamViewer. Team mm-hmm. They have the TeamViewer sponsorship uh, deal, which is worth less than the Chevrolet deal that came before it. And TeamViewer have already said, we're, I think we're only a year and a half into that deal, yep. and they've already said they regret signing that deal and they're <laughs> not going to be renewing. So there's good reason to believe that the next deal after that will be less. Um, you have the value of the, the club itself has stagnated. So for a long time, Manchester United's value uh, soared under the Glazership's uh, ownership, uh, sorry, the Glazers' ownership, and uh, now it has actually stagnated. So my my tweet, going back to my tweet, also said that the Glazers have been bad owners. I'd, I don't think you can deny that. Uh, even if they were good businessmen, th- which let's just say for argument's sake that they are good businessmen, and that they've benefited themselves through the ownership of Manchester United, I don't think that makes you a good owner. And I still think that gives Manchester United fans a lot of grounds for complaint. Yeah.
0: I think when we're talking about uh, rich people buying a thing that they think they control... My brain goes to Jurassic Park, naturally. And there's the uh, Ian Malcolm quote in there. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew what you had, you patented it, you packaged it, you slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you want to sell it. And that feels very apt for Manchester United and my frustrations with the Glazers. Because you're right, Ryan, there is an element of being spoiled about this. If this were a club that hadn't had the success they had had, and I think so many fans came into Manchester United... Because they were successful. Unless you are from Manchester or have a direct connection to that club, the reason... I am a Manchester United fan is because they were good enough that they got shown on TV enough that I saw them as a kid. And I saw this team, they won a lot, they seemed really good, and that was what pulled me in. There are other little connections on the way, former player coaching the kickers, the kickers have their color scheme, all those types of things, but ultimately it's about the success. And the Glazers coming in and having, in my mind, very, very little if not nothing to do with that success, but acting as though they're the ones who did it, or presuming that they're the ones who did it and then sort of trying to run the club as a business, incurring debt, which the club had never had until that point, and then sort of looking at at the supporters as though they're the strange ones for like having unrealistic demands when those demands were not unrealistic when the club was winning. And I think it just comes down to a lack of leadership and a lack of accountability and a lack of dedication to creating a solid team because that money could have been utilized in so many other ways, including, I just want to emphasize again, front office staff who do not make nearly as much money as those players. They don't make in a year what a player makes in half a week. But those are things that could have been done, and those are things that FSG did to to kind of build up goodwill at Liverpool. And it's what Jurgen Klopp emphasized as well. And Manchester United, by contrast, have done none of that. And so, Mm. yes, there is an element of being spoiled about this and wanting to be the best and wanting to be in the Champions League and challenging for titles every season. But every club wants that, I I would argue. And I think it's just that the club ends up being run as a business and a business alone. And if they have to spend money to make the team Semi-functional, or to make fans less angry, then yeah, they'll like throw some meat to the crowd or th- some bread to the crowd to satisfy them for now. It ends up just feeling like a like a Roman
2: patrician uh, satisfying the masses in the end. Yeah, uh, I think I think there is an an element. Maybe it's the social media element of some of the United support that just kind of want to see some big name transfers. But I think if you go and seek out the hardcore. Support. Mm-hmm. So the the guy I'm thinking of immediately off the top of my head is uh, Andy Mitten, who yep. works does, does stuff for yep. the Athletic. You could never, even though Andy Mitten is a you know a Manchester United fan, and my United fans get labelled as glory hunters, you could never call Andy Mitten a glory hunter. He's very much a boots on the ground ground sort of guy. Go in, and, go and listen to go and listen to him speak about the Glazer ownership, and he will, I I swear, he will convince you that they are bad owners at Manchester United have legitimate concerns. I also think once you get to a point where, I remember thinking similar with Newcastle United fans. You remember Rio Ferdinand had strange complaints about Newcastle fans and their grievances with with Mike Ashley. His complaint was basically, well, if you don't like it, just buy the club. Yeah, it's as easy as that, Rio. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for that, genius. Great solution there. But I think once you get to a point where Maybe I'm out of touch with my United fans here, but Taylor, I feel like I would struggle to find a United fan that would defend the Glazers. And when you get to that point where it's a unanimous opposition to something, really anything, to be honest, among a, a fan base, you kind of have to listen and kind of go, "Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe there's maybe there's something here." So as I say, yeah. there's there's a, there's an element, there's a social media element that just want to see Messi and Ronaldo and all those guys signed, but the actual hardcore support, I, I, I don't think they're being spoiled.
1: All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, I'd like to continue this conversation. I've got a very difficult question for Taylor coming after this break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
3: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring today's episode.
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to The Big Thing. We are talking about Manchester United's ownership under the Glazer family. I teased I was going to ask Taylor a difficult question. Here it comes, springing it right now, T Rock. So I, I completely understand, you know, the grievances that Man United fans, such as yourself, have with the Glazers. Would you prefer to have the Glazers own your club, or the Glazers? You know I I what I'm to Ask,
0: and the answer is the Glazers.
1: Yeah. So rather than be a, a sovereign club wealth that fund, sports washes a sovereign wealth fund or whatnot, you you prefer to have the Glazers in situ? That's pre- preferable to being success and bring, hauling in trophies under a different kind of regime.
0: I mean, would you rather be bitten by a poisonous snake or eaten by a T-Rex? I'll continue the Jurassic Park uh, analogy there. Like, uh, I, I think st- like it's not as though one is... for me. <laughs> exactly. It's not like one of those is... I mean, they're both bad in their own way, but I think the, the sports-washing side of things... I said this and I meant it. If, if the Saudi Wealth Fund had taken over Manchester United, I would not be a Manchester United supporter just because... It's a thing. I all, like, it- this is such a, it's a personal thing. So I, I'm, I'm aware it's like the world's smallest violin. But already being a Man United fan, less so these days, but for the longest time, it was like, Oh, of course you are glory hunters. Every American's a Man United fan. And I get where that's come from. That's earned. And that's, I think, why I got like so into the weeds on them so often was to show, no, like, I know these guys from the eighties when they were bad. I know the, the Busby babes and the Munich air disaster and Newton Heath, uh, like rail lines and, trying to show like my love of the the history of that club but it was still that 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 thing that always had to be addressed and the idea that anytime Manchester United did anything you're sort of having to keep in your mind they're doing that by spending money from a, a an oppressive regime that murders journalists mm. I I, I could not do that. I, I think it, it would just be a step too far. It really would feel like they had just fully ripped the soul out of out of a club. And this is coming from a person who, for a while, was like, maybe Rupert Murdoch trying to buy the club in the 90s wouldn't have been the worst thing by comparison. I now think it would have been. But for a while, I thought like it might be nice to have a sugar daddy come in and, and spend a Ugh. bunch of money. And I think age has brought about wisdom and and has brought about the realization that Any person who owns a thing you love and they don't love it as much as you do is always going to be a source of frustration. And then when that thing has also very nefarious things behind it and a very nefarious history, it changes things even more. So, no, I think it's I guess it's better the devil, you know, who's only there interested in profit and less interested in making themselves look more marketable on a global scale.
1: Taylor, when you, when you mentioned Murdoch coming in and taking over versus, say, like a Saudi takeover, I'm, I'm the Larry David gift looking, oh, I don't know which <laughs> way, oh, no, that's, that's yeah, right? it's, both, it's... both seem to be not fans of democracy we can get into another time. Um, but I'll, I'll say, I think I'm a good person, Taylor, mm. but I do derive a sense of schadenfreude from what's happening at Manchester Fair. United. I grew up in the 1990s when... Everyone on my school playground wore a Man United shirt. I grew up in London, where there were plenty of London clubs in the Premier League, but they were all wearing Man United shirts. My in-laws, who live hundreds of miles from Manchester, all Manchester United fans as well. So for me, sitting here supporting a team in the third tier without two pennies to rub together, I derive a certain pleasure from watching a team who have everything at their fingertips not make the most of it. Now... Does that make me a bad person? I'm not sure. Maybe it no, does. No, it absolutely does not. It makes you
0: a rational person who <laughs> who uh, justifiably disliked a team for their successes. And I, and I think that is what's always going to happen. And that's why you're always going to dislike the team that are on top. But I, I think it, it is that feeling for me, at least, then that like you are right to absolutely trash Manchester United when they do laughable things. And and it's not as though when the Glazers weren't in charge or early, in those early days when Ferguson was there, I had a ton of insight. Fergie wasn't calling me to get my opinion. But it really – it's just – it's a it's a club that I no longer want to defend is basically what it ends up being. And that's such a frustrating thing that when it was, yeah, they're on top. I know it's annoying. I know it's obnoxious with the United fans, but like they are really good and they're kind of fun here. Right. And I feel like there would be those moments that even then when I'm going to assume there are English fans who hated Manchester United, who were still kind of psyched when they won the Champions League in the 90s mm. uh, because it had been so long for for any English club, I believe, at
3: that point.
1: Yeah.
0: So like I I think those days are very much done. And instead, it just it's a consistent like I feel like you can't even take that much pleasure out of it at this point because they've just been so laughably poorly run for so long.
1: All right. uh, The last sort of topic we've got to tackle here, Graham, is the future. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? What does the pathway look like for the Glazers? Are they going to sit and coast on this club for another decade? And you mentioned there might be a good out to sell. Maybe right now. What do you think?
2: Yeah, so one scenario is what you mentioned there. They, they could just sit on Manchester United and continue to pick up those dividends and nothing really changes for the next 10 years or more. But there is an argument that this is actually the, the right time for the Glazers to sell Manchester United. The club is starting to reach an inflection point. I, I go back to that thing that we, we've said about Manchester United being a club that that prints money. That's why the Glazers bought it in the first place. But that might no longer be the case in the medium to long term. So United no longer have the the largest revenue streams in the Premier League. That City their sponsorship deal, as I mentioned with TeamViewer, is is worth less than the, the previous deal with Chevrolet. Um, that Adidas deal that they have, the the, the kit sponsorship deal that they, that um, that loses a huge chunk of its value in seasons that United don't qualify for the Champions League. Then you have Old Trafford in the training ground, which we've already mentioned, but that's going to need some investment soon. So do the Glazers commit around £1 billion to that, or is this the time to sell? And I've seen some articles on, on Bloomberg about the Glazers exploring maybe selling some future TV revenues, where have we heard that no, before recently? But the reason mm-hmm. that they're maybe looking to do that is to fund the redevelopment of Old Trafford. So there is a recognition they're going to need to do something. They're going to need to spend some money on the infrastructure. And the money that they could get from a sale, I've seen $6 billion mentioned as the potential figure, is more than they would get in dividends anytime soon. It would spare them from having to find that money to um renovate the stadium and take away the 600 million pounds in debt that they still owe. That's something we should mention that that debt figure is still there to this day. It's barely been touched in the time that the Glazers have, have owned the club. So take away that amount from the $6 billion. And that is a, that is a tidy number for them to go to ride off into, into the sunset. And the thing that the other thing that has shifted the discussion recently is there may actually be a realistic option, a, re- a feasible buyer for Manchester United, and that, that's uh, Jim Ratcliffe. My United fans have spoken about him for a number of years as maybe someone who could buy the club. Some background here, he's the, the richest man in Britain, or he has held that title in, in recent times. He's the chairman of a, a petrochemicals company called Ineos. Maybe that's slightly problematic, uh, but beggars can't be choosers, I guess. Uh, he already owns Nice and Legun in France. He's involved with the Mercedes F1 team, who anyone who watches F1 will know they've been very successful recently, is involved with the Ineos sailing team. I believe they're also successful. So that kind of suggests that Ratcliffe knows how to to run sports teams. And of course, Ratcliffe made a bid for Chelsea when Abramovich was was selling. And that, that confused some people um for starters. The the bid was very late and that meant it was barely considered. Um but he is, he says he's a Manchester United fan from, from childhood. That is also slightly cloudy, and that he has also been to some Chelsea games. He said when he went to uh, when he lived in London. But he is a Mancunian. He says he's always been a Manchester United fan. And the retrospective reading of that Chelsea bid was is that he was planting a flag. He was proving that he has the money to buy a Premier League club. And some people read read the situation as the club that he really wants to buy is Manchester United. So he is a realistic option. As I say, he's 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 not the the perfect candidate i'm not sure any billionaire will be as i say he's the chairman of a petrochemicals company he's in favor of fracking he's a brexiteer um which in my own individual uh my with my own individual political outlook, is look is not ideal but you would have to think in football terms that he would be a better owner of manchester City than the glazers have been
1: so taylor my question to you what is the ideal scenario from now on out in terms of who comes in and what happens to the glazers
0: I don't think there is one. I don't think there is an ideal scenario, to be honest, because I think the Graham's point, if you're being bought by a billionaire, very few billionaires got where they are by being like good people, and those that did don't tend to reinvest that money into sports teams. They tend to reinvest it into educational programs and the like. So I think there's no... Ideal scenario, like Bill Gates, maybe if he decided like, you know what, I want to be a football club owner. Maybe that's the way to go. Short of that, I I think you're looking at, yeah, a billionaire who's probably voted in favor of Brexit or has a questionable past. But I think with the Glazers, you're looking at a group that I think really... I genuinely think just don't care what fans think. And that's been so clear in the way that you never see a reaction from them when they get booed when they're there. You never see them. I just can't imagine an entire stadium of people booing me and not feeling like, all right, I need to do something about that. That's not cool. I think ultimately it's just that that just different way of thinking that millionaires and billionaires seem to have where it's I'm going to do what I want. And there's an element of pride there. And I think the Glazers, if anything, are probably more likely to double down and be like, we're not vulnerable. We're not like in a position of weakness at all. We'll, we'll refinance and we'll find a way to re, like, do all this training facility because we don't want to like give up this thing that we own. And I feel like. What is most likely in my mind is that they will continue to own the club. Maybe, maybe they learn some things along the way. But more likely is that I think Manchester United luck into a couple seasons of success, be that finishing in the Champions League or making a cup run, and that sort of sustains things. And it becomes a lot harder to be frustrated with the ownership if the team is winning. And so I think that is probably the most likely scenario in my mind is that if ten hag does well and there is an element of stability there then things sort of stabilize the the ship is less close to capsizing and so i think the glazers end up hanging on for a few more years
1: all right man united fans it is nearly time to unclench your jaws after joining us for the past hour mm-hmm. or so um taylor any more you want to say about the glazers any closing statements any any positive uh, <laughs> notes you want to leave us on uh ju- i mean just that it is really it's really
0: Fascinating to see the supporters in the streets protesting the club. And it's just a reminder. I I want to own the fact that I'm an American Manchester United fan. I like I love Manchester United. I love DC United. It's I, I don't think people who are born and bred Manchester have another club that they're also keeping an eye on or other sports that they're keeping an eye on. And I can be angry about it and other supporters can be angry about it, but our daily lives are not impacted the way people are who have to hear about it at work and at school and on the bus about how bad United is and about how Old Trafford is crumbling and to hear from city fans about how wonderful things are. I I have a lot of sympathy for the people who have to deal with that on a daily basis, and I see the frustration and I see the anger, and I I think I get it, so – in some ways, it's a nice reminder of how many other things there are that play a role in fandom and in supporter culture and how it's, it's not always just about the results and the players and who you're signing, but about the kind of human aspect and, and how much supporters and fans alike are, are sort of impacted by things. So maybe it's better to focus on the human element
2: than the uh, Glazier element.
1: Yeah, And yes, that's
2: my way of saying they're not human. <laughs> maybe, maybe Manchester United fans should, uh, Andy Burnham, who is the, the, the mayor of Manchester, has been talking a lot recently about uh, nationalising the energy companies and the water companies, which is a big, that's a big uh, news story in the UK at the moment. Maybe he should also put forward a policy to nationalise Premier League football clubs. Yeah. And that's the solution to all this. See what Perfect. UK taxpayers
1: to pay for Man United now, Graham.
2: Uh, well, I mean, I already pay for football clubs in general in this country through shirt. Uh, purchases, so <laughs> might as well just Pretty pay through my taxes.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, I, I think um, my my, uh, my catchphrase I'll leave at the end of the podcast is that uh, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Is that hey. a. Nice uh-huh. You like that? Yeah. I do like that. I hope they for the Man United fans. Um,
0: uh, what's the. Uh, I love Deadwood. Al Swearingen has a line that's like uh, pain and damage don't end the world, the world ends when you're dead. Until then, you've got more pain and damage in store. Stand it like a man and give some back. And I feel like that's what Man United supporters Uh, are trying to do. So there you go.
1: That was slightly more nihilistic than my one, but it's still good.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's representative of where we are in this one.
1: (laughs) All right, listener, thank you for joining us on the latest big thing. We'll have another one on the feed next week. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Graham Rothman, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Lister, thank you again. We'll be back, but for now, bye!